0: listen we will never be satisfied in any endeavor if we're trying to do it apart from jesus hello and thanks for listening to the shoreline church podcast today we will conclude the book of john chapter 21 welcome guys grab a seat if you need a bible raise your hand everyone's going to need a bible so if you need one raise your hand we'll get one to you Uh, If you have the Bible app on your device, you can go to events and look for Shoreline Calvary Chapel. And you can follow along our notes and quotes, things that we'll be looking at today. So we are going to be closing the Gospel of John today. Have you guys been enjoying this study? Awesome. Great. Someone in the back did. That's great. I I have loved this study. It's been uh, so impacting, so encouraging. uh, As we've looked at the very unique perspective that the apostle of love, the apostle Jesus loved, uh, brought. And so let's look at John chapter 21. We're going to read through, uh, starting in verse 1, and then uh, we'll pray and dive into our sermon. John chapter 21, verse 1 says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. We're going to study that section, but let's just close. We looked at it last week, the last verse in john says now there are also many other things that jesus did were every one of them to be written i suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written let's pray together lord thank you for this time as we open the scriptures would you open up your will to us reveal lord what you would have for us and allow us to receive from you we thank you that your your holy spirit is the teacher and so lord anything that i say that is a distraction Uh, Lord, just remove it, and we pray that you would communicate your truth to your church. We thank you for this incredible opportunity to study your word, and we ask, Lord, now as we we offer up our attention span, as we offer up our willingness to listen and, and to follow what you would say, Lord, would you speak and encourage through your word. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Have you ever said or done something that you deeply regret? Raise your hand if you've ever said something or done something that you actually regret. Okay, okay, put your hands down. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're going to regret that (laughs) later on. You're going to regret that. There are lots of things that we look back on and we go, man, I wish I could redo that. I wish I could get some infinity stones and kind of undo things. Or I wish I could go back and, and undo things that happened. I wish I had that ability. Wouldn't that be awesome if we had that ability to just go back and fix things? Uh, some of the examples I'm about to show you include people who wish that they could have undone some of these silly mistakes I'm just gonna show you a few on the screen this person <laughs> opened this grocery store and that's even more than the Beatles worked I don't know how that's gonna happen how about this one I would encourage you not to take parenting advice from Win dixie and I don't know if you notice it yet but it'll take a second all the best for your baby <laughs> All right, now just in case any of you are looking for a special gift for mom next week, um, they are now selling the perfect gifts for mom and that includes toilet gel. Um, I thought this was funny. If you need help managing your diabetes, (laughs) don't go to Kroger. (laughs) Because that sign had to be put there on accident. Um, How about this one? Now, what happens when it's permanent, right? Come on, man, you had one job, one job. All right, now sometimes the misspellings are on purpose, right? Sometimes we know what we're doing, right? right? It's, a little, it's a little Freudian slip there. All right, and then, of course, some of you guys are into cooking, so cookie monster cupcakes. You've got the bottom one, nailed it, right? I tried this one time, that's what my cupcakes look like. Um, so. A lot of us know what it's like to fail in some way or another. You can take that down, thank you. Um, and as we open the final pages of John's Gospel, Peter has this moment. He has this moment. And Peter, at this moment, when we open the chapter, he and the disciples are kind of in a funk. They weren't sure what to make of, of the resurrection of Jesus. It's almost like they were prepared for it, but then when he actually rises, they didn't really know what to do. They're in this situation where we, we, we've heard the good news, but we've just experienced the most heinous death that was ever dreamed up in a form of torture. And we had to watch our dear Lord, our rabbi, suffer and die. And and, and observing that, and then of course running away and, and abandoning him, would have put them in this place of incredible shock and incredible discouragement. And yet now there's news that he's risen. They were incredibly confused. And so you kind of find them in John 21 in this moment where they're just overwhelmed. And Peter specifically is probably still stewing over his epic failure. Remember, he had denied Jesus three times and had acted cowardly in a moment when he should have acted bravely, nobly, and with the leadership that Jesus had bestowed upon him. Now, that moment won't actually come until about 50 days after Easter Sunday on what we call Pentecost. When he stands up filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to proclaim the gospel to those who are listening. But that moment of leadership is yet to come. Now he's still defeated by his failures and kind of crippled by his mistakes. Does it remind you of maybe some situations you've gone through? So as we open up this passage today, I want to open with a powerful quote from Asaph in Psalm 73. Asaph says in Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail we might as well say will fail they may fail but god is the strength of my heart and he's my portion forever in context psalm 73 asaph is writing when he his foot almost slipped because he began to look at all of the ungodly around him and he said you know i don't understand how they have no troubles it seems like people who don't fear god don't ever have any issues with their health they don't have any issues with debt They're not struggling like I'm struggling. They're not persecuted. I'm persecuted. And I'm going through all of this, and Lord, it's not fair. And he almost began to say, you know what, Lord? It's not worth it. I'm just not going to have faith. I'm just going to abandon my faith. His foot almost slipped. He said, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I saw my life from the perspective zooming out from eternity, and I realized, oh, wait a minute, from an eternal perspective, those who are living ease a life of ease today will be living a life of judgment. And wrath, and those of us who are suffering and being persecuted and dealing with issues temporarily, we ultimately will have a a lifetime, an eternity of blessing and true eternal life. So, like Asaph, our heart and our flesh may fail, but God will be the strength, and He'll be our portion forever. Even our failures, as off as awful and as often as they come, and, and as difficult as they may be, listen, our failures will never jeopardize. relationship with our heavenly father and Peter needed to understand that Uh, he had deeply failed the one who Jesus called the rock right you're the rock he had crumbled to pieces and he had done so in front of a little young servant girl and so we saw the steps leading up to Peter's failure we saw that it was self-confidence it was arrogance and that ultimately uh, allowed him to be tripped up And he overestimated his own ability to stay faithful to the Lord. Lord, I got this. Everyone else is going to fall away, but not this guy. I'm the rock. I'm going to hang in there, Lord. When everyone else abandons you, I'll stay true. And he boldly asserted that he would do that. And yet he refused to acknowledge that Jesus predicted that, hey, Peter, Satan wants to sift you as wheat. And I'm praying that your faith won't fail. And after you've turned back, come and strengthen your brothers. Jesus was given a prophetic word. That, hey, Peter, you're actually going to blow it, but I'm praying that your faith won't fail. Your strength and your flesh will fail, but not your faith. And I'm praying that you'll turn back and you'll strengthen your brothers. Peter wasn't even listening to that, and yet Luke 22 records it. So today we close the Gospel of John, and we are going to see this turning back from Peter, this restoration of Peter. And if you are in a place where you need restoration, If you're listening to this and you need to be restored to ministry, restored to the Lord, then this is a very special um, message for you today. And so what we're going to see is though, even though we may fail, even though we may make huge mistakes, that doesn't mean our faith necessarily will fail. It doesn't mean that our heavenly father's love for us will fail. And so we're going to learn that Jesus actually saw Peter's failure in advance and still chose to use a failure like him and a failure like me and failures like us. So, we're going to do three things today on the screen. We're going to look at three areas. We're going to look at, number one, the fish, verses 1 through 14. We're going to look at the flock, verses 15 through 17. And the future, verses 18 through 24. Okay, the fish, the flock, the future. Never underestimate a pastor's skill at alliteration. All right, so with that as our outline, let's look at the fish. Look back at verse 1 with me. It says that after this, Jesus revealed himself again and he revealed himself in this way. And then it lists seven disciples. Notice with me uh, that there's Simon Peter, okay? Uh, Simon Peter, of course, I love that the Bible, anytime Peter makes kind of a mistake and goes back to his old self, the Bible records his name as Simon. I think that's interesting. It just goes back to Simon. So here's Simon Peter, He's kind of going back to what he's comfortable doing. Where we see Thomas, Thomas, we all know is what, you've said it recently, he is what Thomas, blank Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Look at, look at though, it doesn't call him Doubting Thomas. Thomas is like, no, 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 I'm known as the twin. Call me the twin. Like that nickname did not stick, right? He's not, you're not gonna be like, hey, where's Thomas the twin? You're gonna be like, where's Doubting Thomas? So he tried to change his name, I'm, I'm the twin. There's Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. If you remember Nathaniel, that's quite a mouthful by the way, I have to introduce myself every time like that. Hey, I'm Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee. Uh, well, if you remember, um, he was laying out under the fig tree when Philip saw uh, him and, and said, "Hey, we found the Messiah, and um, he's from Nazareth." And remember John 1, Nathaniel said, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" And uh, he said, "Well, come and see." And remember, when he approached Jesus, Jesus says this in John 1 on the screen. He said, "Behold an Israelite indeed." in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Okay, we also in this group have, notice with me, we have the sons of Zebedee. Notice it doesn't say James and John. But the sons of Zebedee, the last time we heard the name Zebedee, was on the shore when James and John were leaving their father and their nets and his fishing business to follow Jesus. So now it's interesting they're referred back to here as the sons of Zebedee. And then two others, it says in verse 2, that are so important uh, that the Bible doesn't even mention them or name them. So Uh, this sounds kind of like an awkward group, right? These are seven guys that I don't know if I want to hang out with. And notice what Simon says to them as their leader. He says, I'm going, what? I'm going fishing. And now they didn't say, Simon, bro, like Jesus changed you from a fisher of fish to a fisher of men. Like, what are you doing? No, they said, okay, well, we'll go with you, right? Misery loves company. And what I think is happening here is that Peter is discouraged he's despondent he's defeated he's not sure what to make of the resurrection maybe he saw jesus and just was like i can't even look into your eyes i'm so ashamed of what i've done i've denied you so they're sitting around they're bored and he's like well what do you guys want to do well what do all men want to do when they're bored let's go fishing right let's go what is it with dudes and fishing i'm trying to figure this thing out like if you guys ever watched like sport fishing right? I didn't think so. No, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's a couple guys throwing rope into a, a lake, and then they pull a fish out, right? It's not necessarily Netflix binge-worthy material, right? But, but I get it. I, I've, I guess you actually have to catch stuff, and when you catch stuff, then it's fun. I wouldn't know, um, so I've been fishing, but um, I think it's interesting here that they're going to what they knew before. They're going back to what's familiar, back to what is comfortable, back to the old and the, uh, the norm. And this is, of course, apart from Jesus. Let's just go fishing. We'll look at the rest of verse three. It says, they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now you'd go at night because of course, the fish would be a little bit cooler. The fish would come up to the surface. You'd have an easier way with a net to catch them. And then as the sun came up, they would go down to the lower portion of the lake or the sea, and they'd get uh, away from the sunlight. And so there should be no reason why they'd catch nothing. They should have caught something. But can you see them all night throwing the net, bringing it in, throwing the net, bringing it in, throwing the net. Oh, we got something. And it's a stick. We didn't catch anything. Does that happen to you guys? You go, oh, I got, we can fish on. And you pull it in and it's a twig, right? It's a a branch. Okay. Um, So what was wrong here? I mean, they certainly had the same skill that they had before. They didn't lose any skill. You don't forget how to fish. I mean, you're throwing a net in. You're not going to forget that. They have the same knowledge. They're fishing, by the way, at the same spot that Jesus originally called them. So it's not like they're in a new location. They know this lake. They know this area. It's not like someone had come and emptied the lake of all the fish or that red tide had hit and killed all the fish. So why aren't they catching anything after fishing all night? Listen, I believe it was because they were attempting to pursue a life of meaning and pleasure and escape and freedom under the sun in other words, apart from the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. Remember, Jesus had said earlier, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And I like to disagree with the Lord on that, and you do too. Well, Lord, I, I don't want to say I can do nothing. I can do quite a bit, Lord. Have you seen all the stuff I can do? Lord, I don't know if you realize, but I'm an asset to your kingdom. Lord, I can do plenty for you. And yet Jesus says, yeah, you, you're doing a lot of activity a lot of energy you're expending and making noise but you're not doing anything of eternal value or worth if it's done apart from me peter's going back to what he knows and what's comfortable and what he says hey i at least have a handle on fishing i tried to follow the rabbi and do the spiritual leader thing and it didn't work and i'm a failure so let me just go back to what i am good at and yet as he casts that net the fifth time the sixth time and it comes up empty he goes what is going on now I'm not. begins to break. There's thought I was good at. And as the light begins to break, day begins to break, there's someone on the shore. Look at verse 4. I love this. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. I love this. Just as day was breaking. And maybe that's where you're at today. You've been in a place of darkness and emptiness. and You've been trying to go back to maybe the old ways trying to find life and you're finding that man why am i doing this it's just coming up empty all the dreams and the temptation that i thought was promising is lying to me and as day breaks there is jesus on the shore now here the disciples don't know that it's jesus and this ruse continues for a few minutes jesus says hey children do you have any fish i love his endearment to them you know he calls them children i just love like he sees what they're doing they're acting like children but he still loves them he and they answered no that would have been an awkward one, right? It's awkward, man, and when we come home and our wives are like, oh, what'd you catch today? Uh, you know, well, I, it was, I definitely had a few bites, right? It's just, it's, it's that, that empty moment, right? The sales numbers at the end of the month. How'd you do today? How'd you do this month? Uh, I didn't, uh, nothing, I had nothing, got nothing. And so there's this moment where they're saying, no, we caught nothing. And so he says to them, verse six, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Does anyone else catch the irony here? Like, so the, 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 let's say the boat is eight feet wide, okay, at the most. It's like eight to 10 feet wide at the most. So the net on this side of the boat caught nothing. But oh, on this side of the boat, we're going to absolutely have success. Do you guys see the irony here? Like, it's not like Jesus is on this side of the shore and he's like, I see a lot of fish, so throw it on that side of the boat, right? That's not what's happening. It's not in their methodology and in, in the practical way that they're doing it. It's not like, hey, on this side of the lake, there's more. I mean, this could not be any more uh, silly uh, for them to cast it on the other side of the boat. This is a picture of faith. This is similar to when Jesus first met Peter. And he said, hey, Peter, uh, can I use your boat to preach? Peter's like, sure. And then as they're in the boat, he's like, hey, let's go out. I know it's been a long night of fishing. Let's go out into the deep. Launch out into the deep and let's let the nets down for a catch that would have invoked faith and so Jesus is doing the same thing he's challenging their faith hey guys let's let the nets down on that side of the boat and you'll catch some and you can imagine the disciples putting up that argument like hey excuse me sir we're expert fishermen I don't know if you realize this we haven't caught anything all night but but we're experts and we know what we're doing and some guy on the shore yelling at us to throw it on the right like we don't need that a lot of us in our technique, right, we don't need people helping us. Have you ever been at the gym and some guy comes up to you like, no, you're supposed to do it this way, bro. And you're like, okay, I know how to lift weights, right? And someone's trying to give you advice, you don't necessarily want it. And so notice what happens the rest of verse six. So they cast it on the other side of the boat and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. See, suddenly when they go to pull up the net, they fill to the brim. So you can imagine all seven of them immediately turning back and looking back at the shore. Wait, who is this guy? Who is this guy? In verse 7, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, says, man, that's the Lord. That's Jesus. Now, I love Simon. Don't you guys love Peter? Uh, Some of us are Peter, right? Peter hears that it's the Lord, and he throws on his outer garment. He had taken his shirt off, right, because that's what you do when you're manly. You take your shirt off. And so he throws his shirt back on, and he jumps in the water. Like the guys are still pulling the net in, thanks Peter, right, the other six guys are still pulling it in, and there's Peter, he's dog paddling to shore, he can't wait to be with Jesus, but I love this picture, because remember when Jesus was in the boat originally with Peter, and he pulls in this great catch of fish, remember what Peter said to Jesus in that moment? He said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man, In other words, I don't want to be near you. I'm not worthy to be near you. And yet here, he's jumping out of the boat to get close to Jesus. He wants his relationship to be restored. There's Jesus. And and with him, I'm able to do what he's called me to do. I think that this is an amazing moment. And I think Peter, in that moment, realized that without Jesus, man, I'm just a washed-up fisherman. And I'm a bumbling failure, even at what I thought I was good at. I can't live this life apart from him. After receiving the truth of Jesus, I can't turn back to the old ways and find fulfillment in the past. And I think, like Peter, when we strive and come up empty and think, well, let me go back to Egypt. Let me go back to fishing. Let me go back to the old ways. It was so good back then, the good old days. Let me go back to that girlfriend. Let me go back to that, back to that uh, business uh, venture and we try to find fulfillment apart from jesus or before we knew jesus Uh, in just one word jesus says comes and just brings provision and hope Uh, look at verse 8 and what happens next it says the other disciples (laughs) kind of see them looking at peter like really Uh, they came in the boat they dragged the net full of fish they were about 100 yards off and when they got out on land verse 9 they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread okay so follow the scene there's seagulls, it's morning, day's breaking, the sun's coming up, you smell the salt water in the air, you see the sand on the shore. And as you're walking up, there's the smoke coming from a small charcoal fire. You guys know that charcoal has a very distinct smell. Most of us love that smell. We love the smell of a good barbecue. And when you smell charcoal, it invokes maybe memories of, of a childhood, of summer. Uh, you smell someone's perfume and it, and it reminds you of your aunt right? You smell maybe an old building and it brings you back to school when you were in, in, in third grade. Well, I wonder if the smell of charcoal reminded Peter of that night just a few nights earlier when he stood at that charcoal fire denying Jesus. I wonder if it was a reminder, if it triggered that memory. Well, verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter them and hauled the net ashore full of large fish 153 of them and although there were so many the net was not torn and jesus said come and have breakfast but then john says that none of them dared ask who are you they knew it was jesus and this was the third time but verse 13 says jesus came and he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and then he did so with the fish i love this story because this would have been reminiscent for the disciples of a few different moments But there's one small detail in the story that I think is really fascinating. And that's the fact that John actually takes the time, did you catch this, to count the fish. Did you see that? How many fish did they catch, church? Throw it out there. 153, 153 fish. Now, why does he detail that number in his gospel account? Why did he bother to do that? By the way, every commentator on the planet is super fascinated with the fact that there's 153 uh, fish. They all wanna know. Why were there 153 fish? Okay, let me just share some of the ideas. Some have said that, well, listen, the um, Tetragrammaton, the uh, transliteration of God's name, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, or Jehovah, J-H-V-H, that appears in the the book of Genesis 153 times, so that's why there's 150, I was like, what does that have to do with anything, but okay. Uh, Others have said, no, at that time, the ancients believed that 153 different species of fish existed. And so this is a picture of all people, every nation, all people groups, every species, so to speak, right, is welcomed in. It's like, well, how do we know that number? That's interesting. One argument said, follow me, 153 is the 17th triangular number, and since 10 equals the law and 7 equals grace, this equals 17, and so this catches a picture of the law and grace of God. Okay, yeah, I definitely saw that in 153. You know what I think it means? I think it means that the 154th fish jumped out of the net. <laughs> now, I actually believe John is specific here because they are always catching fish. We never see the number until the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, we have a number. I believe that John says there's 153 and none of the, none of the fish got out. The net kept them. I think that's a picture uh, of the fact that the father has given Jesus all that would be accounted for. You could say that when Jesus catches you when he redeems you, he never lets you go. You're forever accounted in a net that will not be torn. I love what John 6:39. Jesus says, "This is the will of him who sent me that all of all that he's given me I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day." John 10:28 through 30. "And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish." And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then, of course, John 18, 9, he says, Of those of the perseverance, I lost not one. I think that this catch of 153 is a wonderful picture of the perseverance of God's people to the end. Jesus takes the bread and he takes the fish. And this would have reminded them, remember? of that young boy who brought his lunch, and Jesus had done this incredible miracle. And I think in an instant, it's all clear. It may have been confusing when it happened a few years ago, but I think in this moment, oh, that's what he meant. That's the picture. The lesson was now clear. Oh, we give Jesus what we have, and he takes it, and he blesses it, and sometimes he breaks it, and he makes much of it for others. Whether it's a lunch or it's a life. Whether it's a few loaves or a few children. Whatever God has given to us, we offer it back to him, and he's able to use it for his glory. Maybe the disciples finally learn this lesson. It's not about a hungry crowd. It's not about money. It's not about resources coming up short. It has nothing to do with us and what we bring. It has everything to do with him, his sovereign work in our life, that he can take whatever we offer, and he can use it. With man, it's impossible. With God, it's fully possible. I think Jesus is just kind of giving a little reminder that he's sovereignly in control. Hey, throw your net on the other side of the boat. I'm with you, and I'm going to be faithful to provide, even over the fish in your net. So I think that should encourage us. Now, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's look at the flock. Look at verse 15. When they finished breakfast, by the way, I love this. I didn't mention this earlier, but I love this. Like, we have the beach, we have charcoal fire, and we have fish tacos. This is like heaven, by the way. I just love that. Anyway, so now in front of the disciples, Jesus is going to restore Peter, okay? Okay? I believe and this is just a personal opinion that if a sin is public then the restoration should be as public as the sin and so Peter had sinned by denying Jesus publicly and he needed to be restored by affirming his love for Jesus publicly in front of the disciples so verse 15 says when they finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John or Simon bar Jonah do you love me more than these notice Jesus calls him Simon Okay, the last time he heard that was a few nights ago at dinner before the crucifixion. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you as wheat. When he fell asleep in the garden of Gethsemane, he heard Jesus call his name, Simon. Uh, And so what was Jesus asking here when he says, hey, Simon, do you love me more than these? What is he asking? Is he saying, do you love me more than you love the other disciples? Like, am I more in your life than you love the other disciples? Well, that doesn't seem right. Is he saying, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Well, perhaps, right? Peter had made that boastful claim that even if all these guys deny Jesus, I love you more, I won't. Well, possibly. But see, I believe Jesus was asking him, hey, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than you love these fish? In other words, Simon, am I going to be the primary source of satisfaction in your life, or am I not? You see here, when Jesus says, do you love me, the word love, I want you to circle it in your Bibles, the word love here, right next to it, is the word agape. It's a word that we translate love, but we've cheapened the word love, haven't we? There's men who tell women that they've met online that they love them without even meeting them, right? I haven't met you yet, but I love you, and that's a word that we've cheapened. We say we love everything from Jesus to our Jordans, Uh, Everything from our spouse to Starbucks, right? But certainly, wives, you don't love your husbands the way you love that caramel macchiato, right? Okay, I shouldn't have asked that question. (laughs) So There's a few different Greek words for love, okay? So Jesus could have said, Hey, Simon, do you storge me? Storge is a Greek word, which is the word you use for your pets. And it's this idea of kind of a fond, familiar owner to a pet. I love, I love Fluffy. She's the cutest cat. I said no one ever. No, I know. If you love cats, that's fine. That's fine. I'm not trying to alienate any cat lovers. I'm just saying dogs are superior. I mean, I'm not saying anything controversial, just truth. No, I'm just kidding. I love you guys. It's a joke. So, um, yes, yeah, I'm not going to go there. So... You know, that type of love, even though they are a member of the family, right, that's a different type of love. That's a different, it should be, a different type of love than you have for your husband, right? <laughs> it's a different type of love, Storge. Uh, Jesus didn't use that word. He could have used the word eros, which is where we obtain the word erotic from. It means lust or passion. That's obviously not what he's saying here, but that is the word that the guys use on a first date when they're like, I love you, baby. No, they don't love you. That's eros. That's, they, they lust after you. Okay, It's a different word. Um, Jesus could have used the word phileo, which is where we obtain the city name Philadelphia from. Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love, right? So this idea is of a brotherhood, a fellowship. Hey man, like we have this phileo thing going. It's not really a bromance. It's just like we love each other and we got this, man. Like yeah, we're together. We're men. This is awesome. Ugh. right? It's an intimate bonding between friends. But Jesus uses the strongest word in the Greek language. In fact. It actually shifted the whole idea, the concept in Koine Greek was shifted by the church. And agape took on this whole new depth after uh, the church community. They actually had their feast that we're going to take communion later today. The, the communion feast was called the agape feast. It was a love feast. It's this picture of, of, of true fellowship and laying down your life. Agape is when you utterly lay down your life for someone else without any self-regard. Agape is the love that I believe the theologian B.B. Warfield had for his wife. Uh, Warfield, uh, we quoted one of his books, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, last week. Warfield uh, was um, at uh, Princeton Seminary uh, when it was good for uh, 34 years until his death on February 16th, 1921. What most people don't know is that in 1876, um, he got married uh, to his love, Annie, and they went to Germany to go on a honeymoon. On their honeymoon, the first week of their honeymoon in germany annie at the top of a hill got struck by lightning and she was disabled uh, permanently uh, by the lightning for the rest of her life warfield had to care for her 24 7. he could never leave her side except for at the most two hours at a time and he stayed with her to the very end that is agape that's saying hey we haven't even married yet or we've just been married and now for the rest of your life i'm going to lay down my life and serve you, even though you are unable to do anything in return. That's agape, and that's what our marriages should reflect, and that's what our lives should reflect to a lost world, and that's the word Jesus uses here. Simon, do you love me to the extent that you are willing to forsake all self-regard and lay down your life serving me? Now, look how Peter answers. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, um, unfortunately, in the English, we don't get what's really happening here. In the English, this reads, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And we're tempted to think, Oh, Peter, Peter affirms his love um, with the word agape, but that's not what he says. Uh, I want you to circle when Peter says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Circle the word love. And, and here's what Peter says Peter says, Yes, Adonai, you know that I phileo you. Jesus says, Hey, are you willing to lay down your life for me? And Peter's like, Yeah, yeah I'm fond of you. We're like brothers. See, Peter was probably realizing, well, I definitely don't agape you. I mean, I, I blew it. I didn't lay down my life. I preserved my life. So I can't say agape. So yeah, I'm, I'm fond of you. We're friends. And so Jesus doesn't even go there. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Peter, your job is not to get into the boat anymore to catch food for yourself. Your job is to feed my lambs. So stop being a fisherman and start being a shepherd. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And so Jesus says, tend my sheep. The word here for tend is different than feed my lambs. Uh, It's poimano. It's the picture of shepherding, caring. Um, Not just feeding, but actually caring and watching out for the flock. But then the third time here, something changes. Jesus doesn't say agape the third time. And unfortunately, it says love in our English translations. But circle the third time, Jesus says Uh, Simon son of John do you love me this time Jesus says phileo he's coming down to his level okay all right Peter do you phileo me and notice that Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time do you phileo me and he said Lord you know everything you know that I phileo you and so Jesus said feed my sheep you see Jesus comes down to Peter's level and says do you love me unconditionally Peter do you even love me like a brother you may make a million more mistakes, and your love may be diminished, but nothing is going to detract from my love for you. I still have a job for you to do. Now, now why does Jesus ask Peter this three times? Because Peter needed to affirm. now Jesus for the Lord publicly three times, because he had denied the Lord three times. Now Jesus asking him in the same way, asking you three times, "Do you love me?" would cut Peter and would cut us to the heart. Can you imagine? Spurgeon goes there. Spurgeon says this. Imagine then that your Lord has found you quite alone and is standing before you. Think of him touching you with his hand and gently inquiring, after all, do you love me? How would you feel under such a question? Would you not be struck with it and perhaps with shame begin to tremble and think over a dozen reasons why such a searching question was suggested to you just now? And if the Lord were to repeat it three times and each time put it distinctly to you and to you only, would you not feel great searchings of heart? Yes, we would. With this act, Peter was restored to Jesus and he was restored to ministry. And sometimes, listen, sometimes with certain sins, you're not to be restored to ministry. Uh, But it's important, more important that you're restored to the Lord. And it doesn't always mean you're gonna be restored to public ministry, but you do need to be restored to the Lord. And so the Lord instructs Peter, to feed and watch over the flock of God, okay? That's what pastors are called to do. If you've been a part of a church where the pastors were not feeding you the word of God or were not tending to your soul, looking out for you, praying for you, laying down their lives to protect you from false teaching, then on behalf of the gospel, on behalf of the body of Christ, I am sorry for that because that is incorrect. That is false. That is wrong, pastors are called our pastors and elders here we're called to not fleece the flock which is to shave the sheep and get the the wool from them and then live high on the hog that's not the idea you know the idea is that we're to we're to serve the church we're to watch out for the church we're to guard the church now i don't know if a lot of you know this but um, i'm supported by the church personally uh, to be here full-time and i also have a little bit of part-time work on the side but our other pastors, Marcos and Micah, they work full-time jobs, uh, and, and their ministry is not supported by us as a church. Um, and we as pastors, elders, love our church body. We love you. We lay down our lives to safeguard and feed you. And we don't find ourselves as taskmasters, but as servants. We're not at the top of that apex where we're the most important people. No, we have the inverted pyramid where we're, we're, we're down at the bottom. We want to we wanna be the lead servants. And it's, an, it's our honor and joy to lay down our lives, feeding you the word of God, solid doctrine, as well as defending the flock against false teaching. And so we acknowledge as, as elders, as pastors, that I am not, we are not the head of this church. We submit to, as under shepherds, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and he, he is the senior pastor, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's who we submit to. Amen. So may that always continue uh, as we add pastors, as we add uh, elders, deacons, that that's always who we submit to. Now, let's look at this third idea, the future. Verses 18 through 24, Jesus begins to speak to Peter. And he says, hey, when you were young, you kind of did what you want. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands, and you're going to be taken somewhere you don't want to go. The first century had a, a, a phrase for crucifixion, and it was to stretch out your hands. Jesus is prophesying. He's saying in advance, Hey, Peter, when you're old, you're going you're to be crucified. You're going to be carried to a place you don't want to go. And church history, Eusebius, in the first century historian, records for us in his work, Ecclesiastical History, that Peter watched his dear wife being crucified. And that it was his turn, Nero goes to crucify him. He says, I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. And so Nero has Peter turned upside down and crucified upside down, uh, nailed to a cross and put to death. When you're old, Peter, you will stretch out your hands. Another will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. But notice that Jesus says in verse 19 that Peter's death, John says, this will glorify God. Listen, all martyrs' deaths bring glory to God because they'd rather be mistreated with God's people than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Like Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty-six. 26, they consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of this world because they're looking forward to the reward. Peter's death would glorify God, and my prayer is that our deaths would as well. And so Jesus' command to Peter is simply this, hey, follow me. You need to follow me, and I think this would have encouraged Peter, Hey, Peter, you're not going to make another big failure. You're going to be old one day. You're not going to deny me anymore. You're going to be old one day, and you'll even die in a way that will glorify me. Now, he tells Peter, follow me, but of course, as we've pointed out through the whole study of John, Peter and John are competitive. So Peter wants to know, well, what's going to happen to John? So look at verse 20. Peter turned and saw John. Verse 21 says, Lord, he said, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said, well, If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And so, of course, they thought that meant that John was going to see the Lord's return, uh, but John says that's not necessarily what Jesus said, and he clears it up. Um, But John didn't die like the other 11 disciples. According to historians, he was unsuccessfully boiled in hot oil. He didn't die, and so he was banished to to the island of Patmos, kind of Um, exiled there, and that, of course, is where God providentially revealed the revelation to um, John, and then eventually he ended up being released from Patmos. He ended up in kind of modern-day Turkey, and he, as an older apostle, was known as the apostle of love, and so here, as Peter gets competitive with John, he compares his future to his friend's future, and Jesus says, hey, what is that to you? Like, you come follow me. Stop looking over at John. Peter, stop taking your eyes off of me and putting them everywhere else. Just stay on the path, right? You and I do this, don't we? I call it comparison mode. You do this? Nod your head in agreement if you do comparison mode. Like, whenever we get into comparison mode, we lose. You know what I mean by comparison mode, don't you? Right, moms, since it's Mother's Day next week, moms, you know what comparison mode is. Okay. Okay, walk with me for a minute. You've been on Instagram and you've seen Perfect Mom. Have you seen Perfect Mom? Okay, perfect mom is there on Instagram and her house is decorated amazingly. She's got straight A children and straight white teeth with her children and they're doing crafts while she's folding laundry, while she's baking Cookie Monster cupcakes perfectly and, and then she's doing yoga and blogging and bringing in some extra money all at the same time with her accounting business. She just spent four hours in her quiet time and all of her neighbors are coming over for a Bible study because they've all received Christ. All right, you know, you know perfect mom, right? <laughs> You see, you see perfect mom, and you go into comparison mode, and you start looking, and you go, man, I am way not as awesome as her. Like, I got out of bed and put pants on today, and I'm winning, right? Like, like that's a win for me today. I can't even get my kids to sleep through the night. Oh, and her kid is three weeks old, and they're already sleeping through the night and reading. That's awesome. So I try to go to bed, and I'm sleeping next to my toddler, and it's like sharing a bed with a disoriented octopus looking for its car keys, right? I, I, I'm uh, happy to even be alive with children. I, kept, I, I used to say to Jen when she'd come home, I'd say, hey, I kept the kids alive. Like, you should give me some props here. You were gone for an hour, okay? Like, I get it. Comparison mode. Even pastors go into comparison mode. Dads go there. Athletes go there, or so I've heard. Okay, it's part of the fall of man to pit ourselves against one another. But see, church, we don't compare ourselves with each other. We always lose when we go into comparison mode. We just need to simply do what Jesus said. Just follow me. Follow Jesus. Keep your eyes on the path. God's will for John was to glorify himself through John's long life. And God's will for Peter was to glorify himself through Peter's martyr's death. And either way, we should seek to glorify God through our lives and even, yes, through our deaths. Well, look at the final verse that we'll study today, verse 24. This is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things, who's written these things. We know that his testimony is true. Back in 1935, well, John 1935, he had said, I'm an eyewitness. And this, in other words, was not a cleverly made-up story. This wasn't a myth. He says, I've seen these things. They actually happen. And you can trust me as an eyewitness. I've lived a life that shows I'm a person of integrity And so church, we can trust what we have studied and read for the last 12 months in John's gospel. What an amazing book it has been. And I'm so thankful to have spent the time studying it together with our church. Now, as we close, I want to apply this passage of scripture in three ways. So if you're taking note, I want you to jot these down. Three points of application today. Number one, and then we're going to take communion together. Number one, our ultimate satisfaction is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter needed to learn this. Our ultimate satisfaction is not rooted in your vocation or in a vacation. Uh, Productivity or pleasure will bring a short-term experience of delight, but they don't bring ultimate satisfaction. Peter had to learn the hard way. He had to go back to what he knew and back to what he loved, fishing. But after he met Jesus, even what he used to be skilled at seemed to be lacking. Why? Because he was striving apart from Christ. And listen, we will never be satisfied in any endeavor if we're trying to do it apart from Jesus. So when you're discouraged, church, what is your boat? Peter says, I'm going fishing. I mean, let's get in the boat. What is that for you? For some of us, when we're discouraged, we go to the fridge. Let me open the fridge. I'm going to indulge in some guilty pleasure food. Maybe for some of us, escape means Maybe you just travel. I'm going to go to a new and exotic location because home is boring. Uh, maybe your boat is your office. Maybe it's the gym. Uh, maybe it's something deviant and sinful. But listen, you'll never find ultimate satisfaction in anything other than Jesus Christ. Number two, our ultimate standing is based not on our performance, but upon his Peter failed, and this failure should have absolutely disqualified him from service, but it didn't. And the same is true of us. Our standing with the Lord, church, is not based on our flawed performance, but upon his perfect performance. Tim Keller said, when we think we can win God's approval through our moral performance, and obedience becomes a crushing burden, then that's when we're under law. But when we learn that Christ has fulfilled the law for us, and that we now and now we who believe in him are secure in God's love, then we naturally want to delight, resemble, and know the one who has done this. You see, Jesus knew that Peter would fall even before uh, he did. And so Jesus prayed for him. So whether you sail or whether you fail, whether you have the first place trophy or you drop out, right? Like Peter, nothing would detract his standing as someone loved by Jesus. Peter's love may have waxed cold, but he was still a beloved son. You and I are going to make mistakes, and some of us deeply have. You confessed at the beginning. We've made mistakes. we failed. But listen, nothing you will ever do will jeopardize your standing as a child of God if you have repented and trusted Christ as your Savior. What an incredible truth that is today. My kids may make mistakes, but nothing will change their status as my son and daughter. And the same is true for us uh, who are sons and daughters of the Lord. Thirdly, final point, our ultimate story is determined by the sovereign will of God. You see, John's future, Peter's future, looked very different. John was going to live a life of fullness. Peter was going to have a short, shorter uh, life of martyrdom. And some of us may have a future of persecution and pain, and others may have a life that's full of blessing and favor. But we're not to compare our lives with others and be jealous or covetous, but we're to submit our lives to God and just stay on the straight and narrow. Follow him. We all have a different story, but let's let God write our story and use it for his glory. So as we close, I want to invite the worship team forward, and we're going to close our service this morning in a time of communion. Our ushers are going to go ahead and come forward now, and we're going to pass out during this song the elements the bread and the cup. And if you're not a Christian, you're not a believer in Jesus, just let the tray go by. Just kind of pass it along. Uh, we don't want you to partake this is something that's not a religious exercise it's something that we do to remember jesus and so as the song begins to play we're going to distribute the elements just hold on to them and i'll lead you in a moment Uh, but i have a final thought here a pastor's challenge my pastor's challenge for us this week is this to keep your eyes fixed on jesus you see peter is so busy looking at john that he takes his eyes off jesus Remember, this is not the first time this happened. Peter was on the boat, and Jesus said, hey, come to me, and Peter gets out of the water, and he's walking on water, but then he begins to take his eyes off of Jesus and look at the wind and the waves, he begins to sink. I wonder in our life if we do the same thing, and I just want to challenge us this week to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus in our standing with the Lord and our satisfaction in our eternal security. May we never take our eyes off Jesus and let them rest on someone else. So maybe you need prayer for that uh, this week. So if you would bow your heads with me. As we close, um, we're going to just hold on to the elements. And I wonder if you're in the place where you failed, made mistakes, and you feel kind of overwhelmed by them, and you need to be restored to the Lord. I want to pray for you, but would you raise your hand so I know who you are? You've been in a place of brokenness, sin, maybe bondage, Bitterness, Maybe someone wronged you and you've just been hanging on to that. Did you raise your hand? Many of us have these mistakes that follow us. They chase us. And we close a chapter and we open a new chapter thinking that, hey, that's gone. But we've never really dealt with it. Is that you? I want to pray for you. And so with the hands that raise, let me just lift you up. Father, thank you for the acknowledgement that we've made mistakes, that we've blown it, that we... Some of us have suffered times of bitterness and brokenness from our past. We thank you that Jesus doesn't come just to fix failures and regrets. He comes to give us his very life. Jesus, that you died in our place, that you bore the wrath of God, that you who knew no sin became sin for us, that you were struck, and yet you didn't open your mouth. Lord, we thank you that you took our place and took our penalty. And now, Lord, we can go free. And and sometimes mistakes that we've made don't seem like they'll be redeemed this side of heaven, but we thank you that you are the restorer of life. You're the redeemer. You're the one who brings forgiveness. And when when we've experienced your grace, we can now offer and extend your grace. So, Lord, would you work in those hearts of those who raise their hand? Would you forgive and restore and just do a new work today? Lord, as we distribute the elements this morning. May we consider Christ and just offer a song of gratitude to you. We love you. And we worship you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting This is Shoreline. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.